Hello and welcome back to ESG Decoded. My name is Erica Schiller and I'm happy to invite Ken Schlappick this morning to discuss Johnson Matthey and their low carbon solutions. Can you please share a bit about your background for our listeners? Sure, Erica, and I appreciate the opportunity for JM to talk about industrial decarbonization with Climco and and uh, and also the fact that uh, Climco and JM have been working together really and enjoyed uh, what we've been doing together. Myself, I've been with the industry um, since the 80s um, and since the 90s. I've had a focus on hydrogen production. Um, I've been involved with the growth in hydrogen that we've seen that exists today, um, a tripling of that uh, production level um, over a period of about 30 years. Uh, the bulk of that is really for producing clean fuels for us, low sulfur fuels, low sulfur diesel, low sulfur gasoline. And um, now we're looking into this energy transition, looking at hydrogen as an energy vector for that. And we're looking at a magnitude larger uh, production and capacity of hydrogen to help achieve that. So we're excited to be involved in that. I'm excited to be at my career, a part of my career, be involved in that as well. As far as for JM, JM has been around for over 200 years. But uh, that 200 years, uh, they've, been, they've been able to be around by evolving and changing um, to meet our customers' needs and to help our customers through that. A good portion of the last probably 50 years has been around helping managing emissions um, from transportation mobility, um, catalytic converters, um, in, uh, and uh, devices for heavy-duty diesel applications, um, as well as uh, looking at catalysts in um, in the refinery space, again, for producing these low sulfur fuels, hydrogen production catalysts, um, uh, additives for uh, fluid catalytic cracking that has helped to remove the sulfur from those emissions. And then we've also been involved in uh, petrochemical and continuing to improve uh, the production of ammonia and methanol in those, in those areas, along with other uh, chemical licenses that we have. So that's been a, a real strong point of ours. So that's a broad list. I mean, I heard heavy industry. I heard some energy catalysts, uh, specialty chemicals. So Johnson Matthey kind of spans a, a broad range of industry. And then you're saying that your role has has also been kind of varied throughout that that time with Johnson Matthey. Yeah, it's mostly been around the hydrogen area. And so I've been okay. doing a lot, spending a lot of time with our refinery customers. But this okay. role I have now is really around uh, our new LCS business, low carbon solutions business that we've created over the last few years. And it's really to focus on those existing uh, producers of hydrogen, uh, methanol, and ammonia to help them decarbonize their plants and their facilities um, using technology that exists today, but the focus on decarbonization hasn't been there until uh, it's the strongest right now. Okay, so you're looking at retrofitting existing plants to help them decarbonize. That's the, that's the area that I focus okay. in. Uh, JAM has Great. a portfolio and a program of decarbonization um, that covers broader than that and sustainable fuels production. But for my uh, global market manager role, that's the area I'm focusing on. Great. And to set the stage, we're talking about industrial decarbonization, right? That's that's kind of why we are here today to, to talk about ideas, what we're doing in the space, what the challenges are. Can you talk about why it's important to 
Johnson Matthey and and what sure. what do we mean by just industrial decarbonization? So industrial decarbonization. If you look at the hard to abate um, areas for uh, decarbonization, um, you're looking at for the globe about 20 gigatons per year of CO2 emissions that go into the atmosphere. Half of that is industrial emissions. And in those uh, industrial emissions, uh, the top two areas, number one is iron and steel production, number two is cement production, and the third one is uh, chemical and petrochemical operations. And when you look at those petrochemical operations, chemical and petrochemical operations, 70% of them are produced using a steam methane reformer and, and ultimately producing syngas um, to make those chemicals. And so within that, um, the main areas are hydrogen, methanol, and ammonia. So they're, they're right there with our customer base and the technologies that we have to offer. And so it, it really makes uh, sense for us to be involved in that uh, area of helping them develop their decarbonization roadmaps and decarbonizing those plants and those facilities. That's awesome. So when you talk about syngas, I'm, I'm not sure all of our listeners really know what that means. Can you share a little bit more? What do you mean by that? And how yeah, so is it used? Syngas is uh, produced by kind of two routes. And I just talked about hydrogen, methanol, ammonia as the main areas mm -hmm. that um, consume that syngas. That syngas predominantly being produced by a steam methane reformer and SMR. But um, there's also the feedstock that goes into it. It's pretty mixed around the globe. There's probably about 50% of the emissions are due to coal-fired plants, um, as well as uh, natural gas-fired plants. And so those um, hydrocarbon feedstocks are used um, to uh, in a steam methane reformer to ultimately make the syngas, which is a combination of hydrogen, carbon monoxide CO, and uh, carbon dioxide CO2. And it's the CO2 emissions that uh, we're tending to really focus on as well as some residual methane and hydrocarbons that could be in there too. But that's kind of the, the building block, the engine, to really provide these other areas of hydrogen, ammonia, methanol, and, and onward to other chemicals. Awesome. And so, so I just wanted to pull out, you said 70% of the, like 10% of um, CO2 emissions associated with heavy industry are associated with SMRs, the steam methane reformer. So you're tackling a large portion of our overall industrial footprint by helping those um, syngas production uh, to, to reduce their emissions and potentially, you know, bolt on to carbon capture and storage and reduce emissions completely or more than 90%. Um, so, so that's a big challenge, a big chunk of our uh, global impact and industrial impact to climate change. Um, can you also share, you know, Cl Johnson, Matthey and Climco announced a partnership to advance low carbon solutions um, last summer. And how do you feel that Climco and Johnson, Matthey can work together to impact industrial decarbonization? Right. So one of the things we've been working on with our low carbon solutions business is actually establishing an ecosystem of partners. Uh, I think everyone's uh, talking more and more out in the public domain about to execute this energy transition in, at pace and in an accelerated way. We have to really work together with other companies, um, finding those capabilities that we have, aligning them with other capabilities so that we can progress, uh, progress that as well as we can. The Climco relationship we're really excited about. One of the realities is, is that, uh, you know, even if I just look back a little over a year ago, 
we really didn't know how legislation um, was going to play out. It was really fragmented. You had a few states doing things in the U.S. Um, there was some um, some things happening in Canada and Europe, but very fragmented. Um, and still, even with the national agreements that have been having, like the um, or national legislation that's been happening, like the IRA um, and the infrastructure bill in the U.S., things have been happening in Canada and also in um, uh, Europe. Um, there's still, you know, there's still a lot of, still a lot of states, provinces, and countries in Europe that are defining kind of their own uh, legislation and rules around um, how they, how they are going to utilize uh, clean, clean uh, energy, clean hydrogen production. And so, with that, um, we really felt it was important to have a company like Climco with us that understands those regulations very well that's involved in some of the areas of carbon offsets and now renewable offsets and other areas that are starting to, uh, and credits that are starting to get involved that really understand the mechanics behind those incentives, the mechanics behind um, the aspect of uh, carbon capture and storage. And, um, and so we're really relying on, on Clanco to do that. Clanco really helped us out uh, quickly by um, providing us a tool um, to help determine the carbon intensity and the impact of some of these different streams. Because a lot of the regulations are basing, um, basing these incentives on lowering the overall carbon, uh, carbon intensity, the technologies that can lower the carbon intensity of the technology or the production, the clean energy production that you have. And so um, the typical or the future way of really analyzing that is through a life cycle analysis. Um, a life cycle analysis is really, you know, kind of a compilation, uh, an evaluation of different inputs and outputs uh, and the potential environmental impacts of those on the product. Uh, a, normally, and I'm sure Climco can talk to me more about that than I can, but normally it's a process that can take anywhere from six to 12 months to really do that well around a particular uh, plant production area. Um, and so what Climco was able to do was distill that down to something that we can, a tool that we could work with and work with our customers on to try and explore the optionality that could be there and where these uh, incentives could play. Because one of the realities is, is that um, to decarbonize costs money. Um, and, um, and the ability to get these kind of projects through a company's capital program is really challenging. And these incentives are, are wonderful, um, and they're making the difference, but they still need to be, be reviewed and seen compared with the different technologies and what they do against that. And we're really appreciative of what Climco has been able to help us with there. So I, I just wanted to point out, you said IRA, and that's the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's in the U.S. Um, it was passed about a year ago. Um, and... Thanks, thanks for sharing a little bit about what are those challenges. Um, can you delve a little bit more into what are some of the key challenges for industrial decarbonization? Obviously, cost being a big one. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's um, one of the biggest things we've seen that our customers have seen, right? And I think there's also, depending on who the customer is, there's a lot of optionality uh, that's available to them. I think what we're also seeing is that our customers, while they're looking to to have a decarbonization program, a roadmap, trying to set targets, 
for uh, for net zero in a in a 2040 2050 time frame. Um, they're realizing there's a lot of ways they can do that, a lot of routes they can take, and um, and there's not a, a lot of capital availability to do that. So they really need to look at um, how they can make uh, a positive business case and still drive that decarbonization to occur. And so many things like uh, using hydrogenated vegetable oil to get to biofuels, um, there's a lot of strong incentives there to really make those positive business cases there. Um, with uh, carbon capture and storage, a lot of the uh, uh, early areas that are being looked at are LNG, gas processing, ethanol. So those are, you know, those areas are being looked at first. And then some of the things that we're talking about, decarbonizing, decarbonizing hydrogen plants and ammonia plants and methanol plants is kind of a little bit further down the line, a little bit more complex. Uh, the economics uh, still need a little bit, you know, a little bit more push there. And that's why, you know, being able to work with Climco and understand uh, some of those incentives that could be there, uh, some of those options that can be there of using things like uh, renewable natural gas or, or biogenic uh, feeds in some way, um, wastes that are um, existing in the wastes and off gas that are existing in the facility, those could make a real difference to getting a project over the line or not, making a, a positive, uh, positive capital a business case for a customer. Okay, great. And I just wanted to pull out, you mentioned um, using bio oils or bio-based feedstocks. Those could be replacing petroleum products, right? That's how you're kind of helping to decarbonize is using a plant-based product instead of a petroleum-based product as a feedstock. Yes. Um, and I think one of the things that's being realized is that those Hydrogenated vegetable oils, those those biogenic type feeds, many of them are uh, lean on hydrogen, and so mm -hmm. customers are actually needing more hydrogen to process those. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do with the technologies that we're developing is, um, or at least putting out into the marketplace, making available, is um, the ability to not only decarbonize but actually add production to the facilities. Uh, of a way that can complement those that extra demand that's there for these different processes. Okay, so you're looking at optimizing a hydrogen plant to produce more hydrogen because these plant-based feedstocks need more hydrogen to get to the finished product. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, great, that's great. And um, in prior conversations, you shared many industries, including your customers, made 20% reductions in capital cuts, capital budget cuts in the pandemic, and they haven't raised them back to historic levels. How do you make the business case for industrial decarbonization at these lower capital numbers? And can you share some near-term game changers for industrial decarbonization? Right. Well, I think um, one of the ways that we just kind of quickly talked about and is there is by actually producing more of the product that they sell. So that tends to give um, value to these projects beyond just the decarbonization uh, and the incentives that can go with that. And so that's a way of getting those projects across the line. And, and we've kept that in mind with all of the uh, clean paste technologies that we've established under our low carbon solutions uh, business. But I think some of the other ways that are starting to happen there, and we see customers doing that. I mean, I think if you look at some of the from a large space of all that CO2 that needs to be captured, 
um, still carbon capture and storage of that CO2 is going to need to be there to accomplish the high levels of decarbonization that we're looking to do over this uh, journey to net zero. But um, in this in this immediate time right now, I think what customers are seeing is there's an opportunity to utilize that CO2 to create products of value. And that takes, tends to make a more positive business case. And Johnson Matthey has um, a number of different sustainable fuels technologies. Um, we have uh, examples of those projects um, occurring uh, on the marketplace, uh, doing things like using our FT cans technology with uh, Fulcrum uh, and BP for the uh, project that they have, the Sierra project they have. What is the Sierra project? So it's actually converting uh, municipal waste into sustainable fuels oh, and, cool. uh, you know, producing about 11 million gallons of renewable synthetic crude oil per year. Um, I was starting to talk about the Repsol Aramco mm -hmm. uh, project uh, that's using our JAM Hycogen and JAM FD Cans technology. And there we're looking at um, a plant that will be one of the first to use uh, renewable green hydrogen and CO2 as its only raw materials. And so we're, we're progressing that. It's about 2,100 tons per year of sustainable fuels. And that's often called e-fuels as well, right? I think um, uh, that term it tends to get put on that as well. I think there's, um, with e-fuels, e yeah, we're, we're looking at trying to uh, produce those, those fuels without uh, some, of the, um, uh, some of the traditional feedstocks that have been there for producing those. So we're looking at trying to do predominantly renewable kind of feeds mm -hmm. to produce those. Yeah, and, and taking a CO2, either a waste product or a direct air capture, and then adding hydrogen to make a, to make a fuel. Yeah, and then that's one of the, um, uh, the projects that we're doing, the Haru Oni project in Chile, is actually uh, exemplifying that. So um, it's using uh, a combination of uh, producing green hydrogen, electrolytic green hydrogen, and CO2 recovered from direct air capture to actually uh, produce sustainable fuel. Um, and I think by 2026, it's going to be producing about 550 million liters of, of that sustainable fuel. And, um, and with the intent to build that production up, we're working with uh, a, a company and Siemens is involved in that, Porsche is involved with that, a company called HIF um, uh, that's, that's driving actual, these actual projects. So um, it's really exciting space for us to work in as well. And then a little bit on a different, uh, different area, we're working with uh, Marathon Environment um, to uh, use our technologies to go from biofeeds and kind of a James bioforming technology to actually create intermediates for future chemical production um, from these biogenic type of feeds and streams. And so that offers, uh, I think, a lot of near-term opportunity um, to start doing that kind of um, uh, intermediate chemical supply switching right to to some of these some of these areas, which is exciting. Great, and you know, as we think about what can we do today versus future state, are there some kind of midterm options for you know low capital, mid capital, and high capital solutions to help industrial decarbonization? Well, I think we've, um, I really appreciate the question. And I think our program that we have in JM of decarbonization type of technologies really feeds into that well. What we're seeing, companies are trying to, so they set their targets for net zero. They've 
trying to produce some kind of roadmap of how to get there. And they're realizing that the optionality is grand. Um, there's a lot of routes they can take. They need to understand these incentives uh, that are being there well that can make the capital projects um, progress into their, into their programs. And so I think what we see them doing over the past uh, maybe six months or into this year is, is looking at how they can establish low capital, mid capital, and high capital solutions. And so on the low capital side, um, JM has traditionally with its customers really helped them improve the efficiency of their production processes. And we've, even the license technologies that we've had, we've continued to evolve those and improve on the efficiency of those. Um, in particular, we've got a product called our Stackable Structure Reactor, which actually makes a step change in these steam methane reforming reactors to not, over, not only lower the CO2 emissions, reduce the CO2 emissions in those uh, production units, but also reduce the energy usage, uh, the intensity there, and can allow a customer to do probably somewhere in the area of a 10 to 20 percent uprate in their capacity. So that's kind of a low capital way of enabling them to start to decarbonize, start to address that area. So you're squeezing more, just, just so I, I understand, you're squeezing more production out of the existing plant and using less energy. Right. Oh, that's great. Right. So, uh, um, you know, it's not to the high levels of decarbonization that most roadmaps are looking for. And by that, I'm talking about 90, 95% plus capture of the CO2. Um, but still, we're doing something in the area of 10 to 15% reduction in that CO2. Um, with these with these methods and technologies that we that we provide, so that's a that's I think getting more interest right now as companies are trying to navigate through this, trying to balance their capital through the projects that they have. Um, but on the midterm capital side, that's the clean pace technology, and really what we're doing there is um, capturing all the the CO two first, bringing the CO two from um, all the sources that are kind of in a hydrogen methanol plant, bringing them to, um, to the process side so that we can capture them in a very established way. And, and the technologies have been out there for decades on being able to capture CO2 on the process side of a, um, of a production unit, like a syngas production unit, like hydrogen or like methanol. And so um, by being able to to do that, we can get to these very high levels, 95 plus, 95 percent plus capture, which is very attractive to the customer. But we're also able to um, have this this optionality, at least, of extra production capacity, um, which, like I said, is that that amount is attractive for some of the things that customers are looking to the increased processing that customers are looking to do. I think the other thing that we do is it is a lower capital solution. It's also a kind of a bolt-on solution, so um, customers are able to uh, to make these changes kind of within their major turnarounds without much disruption to the, to the existing plant, and it also has a low profile, um, and that's really important. As we start to look at some of these decarbonization technologies, they can actually produce more plot space than the syngas production unit themselves. 
And so you're so, talking um, about the footprint of the technology. The There's only so much space on an industrial facility. And so you're saying your technology can kind of fit in a smaller space so that the the plant can still operate. They can still, you know, get around and maintain all the facilities. And so my understanding of that second solution is you're aggregating the CO2 from different point sources to one you said process side, but basically kind of one source so that it's easier to collect it. And then you, once it's collected, then you could either sequester it um, underground, you know, geologically or utilize it in some way. Right. Absolutely. And that's, um, and that's, uh, you know, we're doing that with technologies that have been around for over 30 years. Um, it's underpinned by our advanced reforming technology, which is, um, Technologies, unit technologies like autothermal reforming or gas heated reforming, actually changing the way you reform uh, reform the feedstocks into the syngas, so that you can do it much more efficiently um, and uh, and much more compact to intensify, and that's how we're able to address some of those uh, some of those areas that I just spoke of, some of the values that are there that I just spoke of, and um, and then you know we're working with other third-party partners that are well experienced in the area of CO2 capture, further further parts of our ecosystem that we're building to try and um, help the customer have a more complete uh, complete solution. Okay. The third area, the high capital area, is um, is also getting a lot of uh, attention and a lot of uh, examples of projects with that. But that's our LCH, um, our low carbon hydrogen production technology. Um, getting down to probably 10%, if not even less, of the carbon intensity that exists today with the steam methane reforming technology that's used for this syngas. And so um, really intensifying um, how that hydrogen is produced in a very large-scale way. And so, for example, uh, some facilities are looking at moving all of their uh, fuel usage over to hydrogen, and uh, with those kind of large, uh, large-scale demands, um, the LCH technology can fit with that well. And then also in the areas of hydrogen hubs uh, that are starting to surface, um, those hubs are looking for large production of hydrogen as a energy vector within those hubs. And this technology has been chosen to do that. We're, we're, we've been chosen for the HiNet technology in the UK and also uh, the SaltEnd hydrogen hub that's happening in the UK. And um, we've also been chosen uh, for a North American facility that's that's doing more of what I talked about, replacing all of their um, fired, fired heaters that would normally be using uh, fresh, if you will, hydrocarbons um, and producing CO2 from those, replacing those with hydrogen firing. What you say is hydrogen firing. I think it would be helpful to for our listeners to understand um, Basically, when you look at a refinery or an industrial facility, there are needs for heat and there are needs for, and that heat could be steam or something else. Um, and then there are also needs for for energy in, in different parts. So you're saying that traditionally you might use natural gas boilers to produce a bunch of steam to as, as part of the production to produce your 
your gasoline or your, your finished products. But if you instead, and, and it's hard to capture the CO2 from every boiler and every, every different point source of a refinery or other industrial facility. So instead you can produce hydrogen in a very large facility, capture the CO2 from that. And then if you use the hydrogen to fuel your boilers and your other parts of the refinery um, or industrial facility, then those emissions are just oxygen, right? The hydrogen doesn't produce CO2 when it's burned. So you're still getting heat, you're getting the energy, the steam, whatever you need for your industrial process, but there's no point source emissions from those from those individual boilers or heat sources. Correct. And I think one of the challenges of moving to that is that um, there already has been, and, and refiners are, are great at um, at looking at efficient ways of operating their facilities and their process and have evolved wonderfully over time. Um, and so a lot of what they were doing is they were firing those heaters with flare gas in different areas and, and reducing or, or eliminating the flaring of these, okay. of these and gases. And that might that reduce their cost of buying conventional natural gas from a utility because they're using their own process gas. Okay. And so now the switch is, is, is using some of those off gases still to actually uh, um, to produce the hydrogen in the LCH technology and okay. those examples and oh, great. projects that are doing that as well. And then you would capture the CO2 from that hydrogen facility. Okay. Correct. Okay. And at those levels, I think, you know, normally um, carbon capture and storage is being looked at for, for those levels. Because, I mean, one of the realities is, and like I talked about a little bit earlier, is to really get the globe to net zero, the amount of CO2 that has to be captured or that has needs to be stored in the ground, there's there's going to be a good portion of that has to be stored. Um, mm -hmm. But at this point in time, there still is a lot of opportunity to utilize that CO2 to produce some of the products that we have traditionally used fossil fuels to do. Yeah. And so you had uh, mentioned uh, in our previous conversation, there are some trends that you're watching um, for industrial decarbonization advances, as and the and the CCUS carbon capture use and storage market evolves. Did you want to share a bit about that? Yeah, I think. Well, I think one of the things that we're um, looking for in the in the near term um, is actually um, the IRS is going to start defining, I think, uh, hopefully by the end of this year, kind of how these incentives are actually going to be handled um, over the life cycle of a uh, production facility. And so I think that's going to give a lot more clarity to be able to put together these business cases and, and uh, capital project cases for customers. So we're looking forward to that as, as a, a means for kind of moving us out of this kind of paralysis right now of all these opportunities and, and hopefully um, establishing where those clear opportunities uh, can be. I think also what's and happening- Just to, on that, so you mentioned the IRS. So that's related to US, federal, the Internal Revenue Service, and they're defining um, in the Inflation Reduction Act how um, the incentives are gonna pencil out for you know 45Q, which is an incentive associated with carbon capture use and storage, and mm -hmm. with 45V, which is an incentive associated with low carbon hydrogen production. Some of the rules were kind of set at a high level and we're waiting for clarification on the details of, of that to really understand um, what are the exact uh, requirements for an industrial facility to maximize the incentives and um, fund their decarbonization. 
Correct, because I think right now people are making some assumptions. They're making valid assumptions with with how the legislation has been written. Um, but those mechanics are going to be really important to make sure that 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 incentive value is part of the overall um, the overall case of what's being done. I think maybe an aside. I know we've, we're talking about the U.S. a lot in there, but one of the projects that we've also been involved with with uh, with our clean pace uh, technology or our low carbon solutions technologies is. Um, in Europe, in Northern Europe, uh, the Project AIR that's been um, strongly funded by the EU Innovation Fund. And, and part of that is is around taking traditional kind of um, methanol production that would be fossil fuel based and actually gathering off gases from, uh, from this site in Perstop, Sweden, um, and using those to produce the methanol that they would tr- traditionally use fossil fuel-based methanol for. So it's starting to actually um, demonstrate how we can, with our technologies, with JAMS technologies, we can help a site actually utilize the off-gases either in their facility or in their neighboring, in neighboring facilities to actually produce these same um, chemical needs that uh, a customer may have. Okay, so it's taking a waste product and turning it into a finished product and displacing a petroleum-based product. It's exciting. It's kind of aligned with what we just talked about with actually converting using off-gases to produce low-carbon hydrogen at a large level to to fire um, heaters in a refinery complex, um, with uh, which is one of the, I think it's the third largest area of CO2 emissions that a refinery has but firing that with hydrogen. And, and so it kind of complements that, that kind of approach as well. Um, so that's really interesting, Ken. Thank you so much for, for sharing your, your knowledge with us. I mean, it's clearly a, a really cl- complex subject and it's exciting to see the um, incentives that are coming out from both U.S. government, state governments. We're seeing Canadian regulations. We're seeing, uh, you know, Europe and, and other regions are responding. And some of that is incentives and some of that can be, you know, that's kind of the carrot, right? And then the stick might be uh, carbon tax or some other regulatory requirement to make those reductions. So it's clearly a complex subject and I'm sure um, I'm sure there's a lot more we could get into it. So uh, maybe we'll have you back on to, to dive a little deeper. But thank you so much, uh, Ken, for your time today. Well, thank you, Erica. And I really appreciate CrimeCo and what they can do for JM and our ecosystem as we progress our low carbon solutions.